0: Thank you. to a good little walk or drive or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, This is Paul Aronowitz back again with items 16 through 20 in Rheumatology Internal Medicine Essentials. This is item number 16. A 30-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department for a two-day history of fever and progressive swelling and pain of the right knee. The patient fell two weeks ago and abraded both knees. She later developed cellulitis over the left knee and was treated with a first-generation cephalosporin for seven days with resolution of the infection. She is otherwise healthy and takes no medications. On physical examination, temperature is 38.1 degrees centigrade or 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Other vital signs are normal. Healing abrasions are noted on the anterior surfaces of both knees. There are no rashes or skin lesions. The right knee is swollen, erythematous, warm, and exquisitely tender with markedly diminished range of motion but no instability. Radiographs of the right knee reveal soft tissue, tissue swelling and a large effusion but no bony changes. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Acute gouty arthritis. B. Anterior cruciate ligament tear. C. Lyme arthritis. Or D. Staphylococcus aureus infection. Again, choices are A, acute gouty arthritis, B, anterior cruciate ligament tear, C, Lyme arthritis, or D, staphylococcus aureus infection. I will give you a moment to contemplate your answer to that one. And by the way, you'll probably notice that I still have my Bell's palsy and my voice sounds very strange. I apologize for that, but perhaps uh, it will make listening to me more entertaining than it already is. So the answer to item 16 is D. Uh, This patient has a staphylococcus aureus infection. So gram-positive microorganisms are the most frequent causes of infectious arthritis, with staph aureus being the most common far and away, and this is something you must know for internal medicine. These infections typically are monoarticular and affect the large joints, particularly the knee. They usually have a rapid onset of hours to one or two days. So this patient, uh, who otherwise is healthy, uh, had this cellulitis and presumably obtained this inf- infection through a hematogenous spread of uh, skin-derived infection. So the presence of fever, along with a markedly swollen and inflamed joint, is consistent with staph aureus infection. So acute gouty arthritis, um, which is uh choice A is incorrect. Hopefully you did not select this. Um, While this frequently does involve the knee, gout would be exceedingly rare in a healthy premenopausal woman, Uh, and that partly because their uric acid levels tend to be lower than men. Uh, They tend not to get gout until their postmenopausal years. That's a key point for this question. As far as uh, choice number B, which is anterior cruciate ligament, uh, injury or tear uh, that can cause acute swelling uh, but the joint is usually not as inflamed as it described in this particular question. Uh, the patient's knee was not injured after her fall making this diagnosis unlikely. Uh, the uh, exam that they performed did not show any instability although I will tell you that in patients with a septic joint it's really hard to do a good knee exam because they're in so much pain usually and that's another key. And also patients with um anterior cruciate ligament tear usually don't have fever, as this patient does. And then finally, regarding uh, choice C, Lyme arthritis, this would be incorrect as well. Uh, this tends to be a late manifestation of Lyme disease. It's a monoarticular arthritis of the lower extremity. And the, the onset typically is gradual rather than acute, and it's usually not associated with fever, interestingly enough. So the key points in this question are that infectious arthritis caused by gram-positive microorganisms is typically monoarticular and affects the larger joints, particularly the knee, the rapid onset of development, which can happen over hours to one or two days. So the history is key, the exam is key, and the particular person that you're seeing is key. Item 17, a 77-year-old woman is evaluated in follow-up for a prosthetic joint infection. Three years ago, she underwent right total knee replacement to treat osteoarthritis. Three days ago, she developed right knee pain and swelling around the knee and a low-grade fever. A synovial fluid aspirate was obtained and sent for culture, and empiric intravenous vancomycin was started. Her culture grew methicillin-sensitive staphylococcus aureus. On physical examination today, temperature is 38.0 degrees centigrade or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Other vital signs are normal. There's a well-heeled surgical scar overlying the right knee. The knee is slightly warm with pain on passive range of motion. Laboratory studies are significant for a leukocyte count of 13,000 microliters uh, per microliter with 88% neutrophils and an erythrocyte sedimentation rate of 88 millimeters per hour. Radiographs of the right knee show prosthetic loosening and peri-prosthetic lucency of the femur. In addition to switching to intravenous nafcillin, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Adrifampin. B. Advancomycin. C. Schedule surgical removal of the prosthetic joint. Or D. Surgical debridement of the prosthetic joint. And again, those choices are A. Adrifampin. B. Advancomycin. C. Schedule surgical removal of the prosthetic joint. Or D. Surgical debridement of the prosthetic joint. I will give you a moment to contemplate the answer to that one. So the answer to this one is C. In in this situation, uh, the patient uh, has a prosthetic knee joint infection, which is caused by methicillin-sensitive staph aureus and requires surgical removal of the prosthesis. So her findings, including joint pain, the elevated uh, leuk- uh, elevated leukocyte count, elevated orthocyte sedimentation rate, along with positive synovial fluid cultures, cultures, prosthetic loosening, and peri-prosthetic bone erosion are all consistent with prosthetic joint infection. Uh, these joints can become infected late, as this one is. It can be anywhere from more than three months to years. It tends to happen via hematogenous spread of microorganisms. Um, And the joint may be swollen and inflamed or only painful, so you have to be careful not to miss this particular diagnosis in patients who have an artificial joint. Leukocyte counts may only be modestly elevated, uh, and inflammatory markers such as the erythrocyte sedimentation rate or C-reactive protein are usually elevated. Uh, Radiographs are not always positive, but when they are, they may reveal erosion or loosening around the implantation site. And so diagnosis uh, to be made in this case, you need synovial fluid aspiration or open debridement along with gram-staining cultures. Usually diagnosis starts, by the way, with synovial fluid aspiration. Treatment of prosthetic joint infection usually involves removal of the infected prosthesis. And it's definitely required for late infection or an infection-related dysfunction of the prosthesis, such as loosening, as in this case. If you're wondering what happens after that joint is removed, an antibiotic spacer is often inserted, uh, the patient tends to be non-weight-bearing on that joint, um, and they have to receive long-term antibiotics anywhere from weeks to months, um, and re-implantation can only be considered after complete resolution of the infection so that the new joint implant doesn't get infected. So you're wondering about the, uh, the other choices, of course. Um, and the other surgical debridement alone with a prolonged course of antibiotics, and this can sometimes be curative in selected early cases of prosthetic joint infection, but in this case, this patient presents late with loosening of the prosthesis and really needs to have uh, something more definitive like removal of the prosthesis and treatment for a prolonged period. Uh, Regarding uh, giving rifampin, that would not be a very good choice alone in this particular patient. There is some evidence that adding rifampin uh, to uh, antibiotics may sometimes improve outcomes if it's a methicillin-sensitive staph aureus, uh, but that's usually only if they're going to have early extensive surgical debridement uh, in an attempt to preserve the prosthesis. Since this patient is not a candidate for this approach, you would not use rifampin alone. That's a fairly subtle uh, answer, actually. And then regarding giving intravenous vancomycin, hopefully you did not make this selection because you probably noted that the patient has a methicillin-sensitive staph aureus, and you would only use vancomycin if it was a methicillin-resistant staph aureus. And it's a totally reasonable drug to begin until you have your sensitivities back given the high prevalence of methicillin-resistant staph aureus infections throughout the United States but in this situation it would not be something you would use um, to treat in addition to the nafcillin which is already in the answer. So key point in this particular question is that treatment of delayed onset prosthetic joint infection typically involves removal of the infected prosthesis with prolonged treatment with antibiotics prior to re-implantation of a new prosthetic device. And item number 18, A 24-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department for a five-day history of fever and right knee pain. Over the past two days, the left ankle and right wrist have also become painful and swollen. The patient was previously well and has no history of trauma. Her only medication is an oral contraceptive. On physical examination, temperature is 38.4 degrees centigrade or 101.2 degrees Fahrenheit. Other vital signs are normal. The right wrist is swollen, erythematous, warm, and painful. The dorsum of the right hand is swollen, erythematous, and warm, with tenderness to direct palpation and minimal ability to move the fingers. The right knee is tender to palpation with a moderate effusion. The left ankle is tender, and the dorsum of the foot is swollen and tender. Findings on examination of the skin are shown in plate 28, And I will upload an image of that particular lesion. Uh, If you happen to be sitting at a desktop computer or laptop, you will see that image in front of you as you're listening to this podcast. However, if you are listening to this on a small MP3 device, I will describe the lesion to you, and it's essentially a uh, pustular-appearing lesion, um, something between a sort of papule and a pustule, Uh, and a pustule being something that looks like it contains pus, and it's less than one centimeter in size, and it's on the palm of the hand, uh, just over the tendons. Arthrocentesis of the knee shows a synovial fluid leukocyte count of 14,400 per microliter with 85% neutrophils. The synovial fluid is negative for crystals, and gram stain and cultures are negative. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, disseminated gonococcal infection, B, gout, C, rheumatoid arthritis, D, staphylococcal arthritis. Again, those choices are disseminated gonococcal infection, B, gout, C, rheumatoid arthritis, or D, staphylococcal arthritis. So hopefully uh, you got this question correct. And uh, the answer is A, this patient has disseminated gonococcal infection. um, And she also has associated gonococcal arthritis. Uh, The key sort of clues in this are that she's young. Uh, They give you a history of her being on oral contraceptives, which sort of would imply that she's sexually active. Um, And this is a disease that tends to occur in young sexually active adults, who are particularly women. So disseminated disseminate gonocoxemia is characterized by a prodrome of tenosynovitis, migratory or additive polyarthralgia, and cutaneous lesions, as described in this case, that progress from papules or macules to pustules. And by the way, this can also be hemorrhagic pustules as well. Fever and rigors are common, and in this patient, she develops frank arthritis, uh, which affect typically the large and medium-sized joints, and they can be accompanied by tendonitis and these papulopustular skin lesions. The leukocyte count is typically less than that you'd see in other forms of bacterial arthritis, and of note, the gram stain and culture results are usually negative from the arthrocentesis. So when you hear a negative gram stain and culture results, be thinking about GC. It rarely grows out of joints. So regarding the choice of gout, uh, uh, this can be highly inflammatory and polyarticular. But again, as we discussed in the last question, uh, it rarely—or sorry, two questions ago—it rarely occurs in premenopausal women. Remember, think postmenopausal women for gout, um, and predominantly men uh, if they're younger. Um, you know, the attack uh, in gout is rarely polyarticular at uh... the beginning and we would be looking for an attack in the first metatarsophalangeal joint and of course gout is not associated with papulopustular skin lesions so that's a bad choice frankly Um, and hopefully you didn't make it now but you didn't uh... and then uh, as far as rheumatoid arthritis goes that's a systemic polyarticular disease but think of rheumatoid arthritis as being more symmetric uh... usually occurs on both sides of the body that tends to be the proximal small joints of the hands. Uh, you would not see tendinitis with rheumatoid arthritis, and you would not see these papulopustular skin lesions. Um, also, this patient has fever, and that's not a common feature of rheumatoid arthritis. And finally, regarding staphylococcal arthritis as being an etiology here, uh, that tends to be more common in children and older adults um, Those with previously damaged joints are also at risk for staphylococcal joint infection, but it's usually monoarticular, as we saw um, a couple of questions ago, and does not cause tenosynovitis, and again, uh, not to be repetitive, but it wouldn't cause these papulopustular skin lesions, which are classic for disseminated gonococcal infection. So if you're looking for key neurocalisthenics in this question, these papulopustular lesions um, with a migratory frank arthritis in a person um, who is younger and sexually active is almost always going to be disseminated gynecoccal infection in these types of questions, so keep alert to that. In real life, you will see this as well. Key point in this question, gonococcal arthritis uh, develops and associated with systemic gonococcal infection, typically begins as a migratory or polyarticular disease and can affect large and medium-sized joints, and other findings are tendonitis and, to be repetitive, papulopustular skin lesions, which you can look at on your desktop or laptop after I upload that particular image out of the Internal Medicine Essentials. Item 19, a 49-year-old woman is evaluated for a three-month history of progressive joint pain. She has bilateral hand, knee, and foot pain associated with 90 minutes of morning stiffness. Over the last six weeks, she has noted swelling in her hands. She now has functional limitations due to her disease. She cannot turn a doorknob or open jars or walk more than two blocks because of pain. Ibuprofen provides minimal relief. She otherwise is well and takes no additional medications. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Musculoskeletal examination reveals tenderness and swelling of the first and second metacarpophalangeal and proximal interphalangeal joints and tenderness and swelling of the metatarsophalangeal joints and ankles. Her knees are noticeably swollen. <coughs> excuse me. But her knees are noticeably swollen but without a clear effusion and tender to palpation. The remainder of the examination is unremarkable. Her laboratory studies are erythrocyte sedimentation rate, 58 millimeters per hour, which is elevated. Rheumatoid factor, 48 units per milliliter, which is elevated as compared to an upper limit of normal of 40 KU per liter. Uh, Anticyclic citrullinated peptide antibodies are positive. So that's anti-CCP. Parvovirus B19 IgM antibody is negative hand radiograph shows soft tissue swelling without bone erosions or periarticular osteopenia which of the following is the most appropriate therapy a hydroxychloroquine b infliximab c methotrexate or d sulfasalazine again choices are a hydroxychloroquine b infliximab c methotrexate or d sulfasalazine how about that this is a treatment question but you have to know the disease to know what you want to treat the patient with. So the answer here is C, and that is uh, to use methotrexate to treat rheumatoid arthritis. Um, She has uh, early rheumatoid arthritis, but it's fairly aggressive and incapacitating, uh, as described in the question. She can't open jars. She can't walk. She's having trouble doing activities of daily living. She has synovitis, symmetric distribution of arthritis involving small joints of her hands, feet, and ankles. She's got the elevated ESR, positive rheumatoid factor, and anti-CCP, which all seriously support the diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. So experts recommend that patients begin so-called disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, otherwise known as DMARDs, within three months of the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. So the earlier that DMARDs are instituted, the more likely the damage from this condition will be limited. The initial choice of a DMARD is based on the severity of the inflammatory disease, the rate of disease progression, and whether erosive disease is seen on radiographs, and whether a patient has anti-CCP antibody positivity. Um, So use of methotrexate may benefit patients with early mild to moderate rheumatoid arthritis, but its use is definitely imperative in patients with rapid disease progression or functional limitations as in this particular case. Uh, in the absence of contraindications, methotrexate should be instituted immediately in patients with erosive disease documented at disease onset. It can be used as monotherapy in patients with early disease as it's highly affected. It's very well tolerated. It's associated with high rates of adherence and has a relatively cost, low cost compared with other disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. Just a couple freebies here. The side effects, this is not in the text, but the side effects of methotrexate you would look out for or liver toxicity, uh, lung toxicity. Um, so you'd be following the LFTs for a while, and uh, the me- uh, methotrexate lung can be a fairly idiosyncratic uh, pulmonary problem when it occurs. So regarding the other choices, including hydroxychloroquine, moni- monotherapy with hydroxychloroquine or sulfasalazine, or combination therapy with these agents is indicated to treat early mild and non-erosive disease um, hydroxychloroquine alone has not been shown to retard radiographic progression of rheumatoid arthritis and therefore should be used only in patients whose disease has remained non-erosive for several years so sulfasalazine you may know is an aspirin like agent that is often used in combination with methotrexate or another non-biologic DMARD when there's an inadequate response to therapy but you would try this woman on methotrexate first. Sulfosalazine is not indicated initially in this patient who has not had a trial of methotrexate therapy yet. And again, she needs methotrexate because she has fairly limiting disease uh, in terms of her ability to do her ADLs and so forth. So regarding infliximab, now this is a uh, tumor necrosis factor uh, alpha inhibitor that is often used when patients do not respond to methotrexate or if they have advanced disease and a poor prognosis such as early erosive disease. This woman does not have early erosive disease, but she has early disease with marked limitation. So key point in this question, methotrexate may benefit patients with early mild to moderate rheumatoid arthritis, but its use is imperative in patients who have rheumatoid arthritis associated with rapid disease progression or functional limitations, as in this particular case. And finally, item number 20 in this batch of five questions for you. A 65-year-old woman is evaluated for a seven-month history of hand, wrist, and knee pain. The joint pain is associated with morning stiffness that improves after two hours of activity. Naproxen provides some relief. The patient has had no recent illnesses, has no other medical problems, and takes no additional medications. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Bogginess is noted when palpating the metacarpal phalangeal and proximal interphalangeal joints of the second through fifth digits of each hand. There is tenderness to palpation over the wrists. A right knee effusion with mild overlying erythema is present. A smaller knee effusion is present on the left. The patient has pain with range of motion in her fingers, wrists, right knee, and left shoulder. She has full range of motion of her back without any midline tenderness on palpation aspiration of the right knee reveals a synovial fluid leukocyte count of 10,500 per microliter. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, ankylosing spondylitis, B, chronic gouty arthritis, C, osteoarthritis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis? Again, those choices are A, ankylosing spondylitis, B, chronic gouty arthritis, C, osteoarthritis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis give you a second to contemplate the answer to that question. So here the answer is D, which is rheumatoid arthritis. So again, by now, after all these questions, which give you whether someone has uh, morning stiffness only lasting a little bit of time versus a lot more time. In this case, she has morning stiffness lasting more than 60 minutes, as well as a synovial fluid leukocyte count greater than 5,000 per microliter, consistent with an inflammatory arthritis. So most patients with rheumatoid arthritis have a symmetric polyarthritis involving small, medium, and large joints. The wrists, the metacarpophalangeal and proximal interphalangeal joints of the hands, and the metatarsophalangeal joints of the feet are almost always affected. So when you hear about those joints being involved, you hear about morning stiffness more than 60 minutes, and a leukocyte count greater than five thousand you should be seriously considering rheumatoid arthritis typically the distal interphalangeal joints and lumbar spine are spared in this disease by the way so this is rheumatoid arthritis most likely so regarding the choice of ankylosing spondylitis um, this is uh... begins in the sacroiliac joints and lumbar spine and progresses cranially over time This tends to affect males in predominance to females, and patients are typically between 20 and 30 years of age at presentation. So she's the wrong demographic. She's a 65-year-old woman, not a 20- or 30-year-old man. Patients with inflammatory back pain and synovitis of peripheral joints should be evaluated for spondyloarthropathy. So if you hear about sacroiliac joints or lumbar spine, think about ankylosing spondylitis, but only in the correct demographic. Acute gouty arthritis uh, typically develops over hours and often starts at night. Uh, early in the disease course, acute gouty attacks occur in single joints, uh, which is typically the first phalangeal joint of the foot. Uh, they can occur in any joint and are associated with erythema, swelling, and pain of the affected joints. Um, patients, by the way, can get a low-grade fever with gout. Um, this is important to know about. It's seen pretty commonly. Um, And in this particular patient, she has not had a history of acute uh, gout, does not have tophi, so chronic gouty arthritis is highly unlikely in this woman. And finally, osteoarthritis is highly unlikely in this woman because uh, generally osteoarthritis is going to affect, as you'll recall, the first metacarpophalangeal joint and then the proximal and distal interphalangeal joints, knees, lumbar and cervical spine and hips. uh, morning stiffness with osteoarthritis, remember, is associated w- with pain that typically lasts less than 20 or 30 minutes when they get up in the morning. And this patient, as we mentioned, had pain exceeding 60 minutes. So the key point in this questioning is that morning stiffness lasting more than 60 minutes in a synovial fluid leukocyte count greater than 5,000 per microliter are associated with inflammatory arthritis, such as rheumatoid arthritis. And that con- this hopefully I'll be back soon with less of a Bell's palsy so that you can understand me better but remember one thing Sylvester Stallone also had a Bell's palsy